why do you obey? I know that's presumptuous that I think some of you might obey. But why might you obey or listen to your parents? Why would you obey or listen to your teachers or your employers? Why do you obey or listen to your government or to laws? Why do you obey or listen to your spouse? Are there terms and conditions to your obedience in your different relationships? We live in a society where we put all kinds of terms and conditions on all kinds of different relationships. This is how I will obey, and this is how far I will obey. This is how much I will love. And even in our society, we have these things called, in our marriages, prenuptial agreements. I'm not an expert on prenuptial agreements. I do not have one. But in in essence, they are agreed upon terms and conditions of each party's marital rights. We're saying, we're going to lay it out, put it in words. This is your marital right, and this is my marital right. This is what I will do, and this is what you will do. And if you don't, this is what will contractually happen. And this is basically, it is a contract defining a relationship that is professed to be based on love. God's definition of love is not based on terms, conditions, and stipulations. I want you to hear that very carefully. God does not love you based on any terms, agreements, or stipulations that he has with you. That is not his love. Love, by definition, is freely given, never earned. Freely given, never earned. Love, then, by definition, is grace. Is grace, not law. If you think of law as a terms of obedience. Yet you and I... And the people of this world, we set all sorts of terms and conditions. We may not put it out on papers, but it is in our head, in all our relationships. And here's the thing. Here's what I will say. Sometimes it is healthy to be away from people that are not healthy for you. Those are actually good things to do for that person. That actually might be a great way to love someone is by removing yourself from them harming you. And it's a good way of loving yourself. So I am quite aware of that as well. The, the problem is, is that we set up all these terms and conditions, and we even set up in our relationship with God. We set up terms and conditions. This is how we're going to love you, God. And it begins with not understanding actually who he is or actually what love is. We act like we're the creator. This is how I am going to love you, God. This is how I am going to interact with you. These are my limits with you. This is how I will worship you. This is how I will follow you. We try to define and confine our relationship with God into our comfort zones. Here's what I will promise you about God. He will not stick to your comfort zones. He will push your comfort zones. He is going to define because he is the creator and he is love. He is going to define for you. And because he loves you, he's going to teach you inside and out what love 
is. Let's see how Jesus models and defines a loving, grace-filled relationship. John 13, verses 31 to 32. When he had gone out, uh, that's Judas, by the way, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Here's the context of right. I just told you, right, last week we read the passage where, where uh, Jesus predicts someone is going to betray them. He actually, uh, Peter asked John, like, who's going to betray him? Like, what's John? Jesus and John kind of have this private conversation. It's the one I give this morsel to. And he gives, Jesus gives the bread to, Jesus, uh, to Judas. And he tells Judas publicly, go do what you're going to do. Now, the rest of the disciples have no idea what Jesus, Judas is going to do. But we know Judas has done flee. Jesus knows he's fleeing. The betrayal is about to happen. And now Jesus says, now, now is the time of my glory. I mean, it's like this, this now is this immediacy of this moment. Not just, hey, now Jesus left. Now I'm glorified. No, it's now is my hour. We've been hearing this in John. Like the hour has not yet come. Now is the time where Jesus will be glorified. Now is the time for Jesus to be betrayed. Now is the time for him to go to the cross. Now is the time for him to lay down his life for his people. Now is the time for him to save his people. The cross is the moment of glory for the Father and for the Son. It is the defining moment of his character and love. And in this, in this description we have, right, now the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified. It's, it's this circular love relationship in this trinity which we'll talk more about. It's like the Father is glorified by the actions of the Son and the Son, right, so the Son glorifies him and yet the Father glorifies the Son and so there's this mutual glorifying, mutual love in this relationship. Interestingly enough is that Jesus uses the term son of man. Now, it's a little bit unique for the gospel of John to use the son of man. In the uh, synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus almost exclusively uses this term son of man. In the context, when we hear the son of man, or even when they heard the son of man, it was a, a humbling kind of term. A lowly uh, kind of term. But also in the context when you use the Son of Man, in the Old Testament references for the Son of Man, particularly in Daniel 7, the Son of Man, it's actually a glorious term. It's like the Son of Man will be glorified and lifted up. And so you here you have this term, which is in the immediate ear sounds lowly and humble, and yet in, in its biblical context is glorified and humbled up. And so it's this, this dichotomy this, this of the lowly and the, at, at the same time glorified. We get this in Isaiah. This, Isaiah talks about the suffering servant, which Jesus is, this lowly person who's exalted to be the sovereign king. And this is what the cross is about, this, this kind of strange dichotomy. It's that the, the lowest moment of humanity is the most glorious moment for Christ to show his love, where, where humanity shows all its hatred. Where Jesus humbly goes, obediently goes to the cross. It is the time where he is most glorious. Now at the cross, 
Jesus is glorified. The Father is glorified in Jesus because what Jesus is doing for the Father. This is actually a really kind of an important thing. The cross primarily is a moment where the Son is doing something for the Father. You think, you, you and I, because this is how we are, particularly me, we make the cross about us. This is what Jesus does for us. And certainly, it is for us. But it is primarily Jesus' obedience to the Father is the purpose of the cross. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him, Jesus, in himself a glory him and glorify him at once. The Father will glorify Jesus because Jesus glorified the Father by his actions, by his obedience to the Father's will. The Father is going to glorify the Son because the Son decided to glorify the Father by his obedient actions. Another way we could say this, glory, is the Son loved the Father so much, he obeyed. Obedience, by necessity, is an action of love. If it's not an action of love, it's not obedience, nor is it glorifying. That's really important to understand. As children, as grown adults, Really important to understand. This is what D.A. Carson says. God the Father is glorified in Jesus' temporal obedience. This doesn't mean it's like in just a moment, but it's like temporal time at the cross. Obedience, sacrifice, death, resurrection, exaltation. You see how we're taking like a couple days here where we're making it the moment, the hour. One event. Jesus is glorified in the same event. The Father's glorified in this event. Jesus is glorified in this event. In the eternal presence and essence of his heavenly Father, partly because by this event, the cross, he, Jesus, re-enters the glory he had with the Father before the Word himself became incarnate, before the world began. The entire event displays the, the saving sovereignty of God, God's dawning kingdom. Here's, here's what we're getting at. Jesus is glorified. Jesus glorifies and loves the Father so because of his obedience, because he goes to the cross. The Father glorifies him and loves him because he does this. Of all of this moment, and what this moment does, Jesus has come into the world. John has told us this in John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have not seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the God. So Jesus has this glory from the foundation of the world he enters in to humanity still has this glory it's a little bit obscured for us he reveals this glory by his obedience to the father and then he enters in to the eternal presence of his father again and reveals all his glory again re-enters into that pre-incarnate that eternal glory we get this in, in john 17 4 through 5 Jesus prays, I glorify you, talking to the Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Interesting, right? I love you, I glorify you by doing what you've told me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. Now, you may say, wait a second. What am I hearing? The Father only glorifies the Son 
because of the son's obedience to the father? Is that the lesson that we're learning here? That God the Father only glorifies the Son because of the Son's obedience to the Father. Is, are, are, is this not a works-based salvation that I'm preaching? And the answer is, to this question, is yes. This is the stunning answer to this question. The Father only glorifies the Son because of the Son's obedience to the Father. Yes, the answer is absolutely, that is the only reason why he glorifies it. I already told you the basis of that, why he does this. The answer is, because here's really important. Our salvation is dependent upon works, just not ours. Really important fact. Just not ours. It's based on Jesus and his work alone. And if his work didn't happen, you and I would not be saved. This is called a co the covenant of works in a theological terms. And so Westminster Confession of Faith describes it this way. Chapter 7.2 It says, The first covenant made with man, humanity, was a covenant of works. In it, life was promised to Adam and through him to his descendants on the condition of perfect personal obedience. So here's the thing. God, at the very beginning of creation, made a covenant of works. This is what he said to Adam and Eve, and therefore to all his descendants. Man, you will have life forever, and you get to be with me, and here's the thing. You need to obey me. Perfect obedience. This is what is required of you. It is your works base. Now, of course, we know the story happens real quick that they disobey and things fall apart. And we all disobey in the midst of that. Over and over and over again, the story of humanity is disobedience to the covenant of works. The purpose of Jesus who comes in the incarnate word into the form of humanity is so that it is a restart of humanity. God has tried to restart, or tried. It's like saying he didn't know it was going to happen. But he's shown many methods. Like, okay, right, if I restart with man, with Noah, it still falls apart again because man will disobey my works. Here it is. He himself, he himself is going to become man. He's going to restart humanity. And Jesus alone, his whole life, perfectly obeys the Father into the glorious moment, even at the cross when the Father says, you have to lay down your life for everyone else. He perfectly obeys and thus fulfills the covenant of works, and only by that are you saved. If the covenant of works does not happen, if it's not fulfilled by Christ, you and I are not saved. Of course, it will be saved because the perfect Father comes down in the perfect Son and he does the perfect will. There's another covenant. It's the covenant of grace. And this is the covenant of grace cannot happen unless the covenant of works is fulfilled. And here's what the covenant of grace says. Covenant of works. Jesus fulfills it. Covenant of grace says, you want to be saved? You have to trust. You have to trust that the Son fulfilled the covenant of works. Let it end. So you have to trust and believe that he died and rose for you, that he is God incarnate. 
You have to believe that, and then you will be saved. You don't have to do anything but trust and believe. That's the covenant of grace in its ultimate form. We can only trust and believe because the covenant of works has been freely accomplished by the obedient son. Why? Why does Jesus obey the Father? This is the most basic, foundational, and root understanding of who God is. The Trinity. It is because of their mutual love. Because Jesus loves the Father. Because the Father loves Jesus. Start where you were want on that, right? The Father loves Jesus, Jesus loves, whatever. They mutually love each other freely, and it's not works-oriented. It's just by the very nature of who they are, they love her. And then they're because of love, by definition, it's not just words or thoughts or ideas. It is, by definition, an action. You can't say, I love someone, and then treat them unlovingly. Love, by very definition, acts out. And so the very character of Jesus acts out in obedience because he loves the Father and he knows the Father loves him. And he knows that his will is good and loving. This is, this is the relationship, the eternal relationship of the Trinity. The Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father over and over. And by this kind of love is by nature transformative to all of creation. John 5, 20, the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. John 17, 24, just a few examples. Father, I desire that, I, that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Right, did you hear that? You love Jesus, the father said, he's saying the father loved him before the foundation of the world and he glorifies him because he loves him. Jesus obeys the Father because he loves the Father. Obedience to God is only based on love. There is no other obedience. I freely love my wife, my children, only because I learn and am learning to love God. I, I, I'm learning to love my neighbors, much like Theo struggles to, right? Because I am learning how God loves me. And I'm learning how to love him. I'm learning to love my enemies. Because I'm learning how God loves me. And I'm learning how to love him. Like, so I better say, like, I love all those things... Because God loves me. It's, it's this circular, never-ending grace, freely given love between the Father and the Son. And, and it's the same kind of circular understanding of this love that's transformative that God is trying to show in his relationship with us. Just as the Father and the Son have had this circular relationship of love, so he's creating us to have this circular relationship. Because I understand the Father loves me, I love the Father. In the same way. I, I just want to pause for a little second here. Um, I want you to understand, right, why do we obey? 
It's only based on love. So the Gospels do a really good job, and Jesus does a really good job of going after uh, legalism or uh, Pharisees who, who want to love, but they create all these different laws that are their laws, and they kind of get in the way. And that's not grace. Like, we've, Jesus doesn't wipe out the law. He obeys the law. I mean, he is the law. It's his very character. But obedience is always based on love, not because of outward, because it's the law. I obey things because of the law. Here's what I will guarantee you. You will break laws in society because they're laws. You will justify them in lots of different ways of why you will break them. But if you love that thing that you want to obey, you will not break that law. Case in, case in point here, all right. So we had a, a big Supreme Court decision this week. Did we not? Right? Uh, you can celebrate it if you, can, if you want, but here's the thing. Laws don't change hearts. Human laws definitely do not change hearts. So that law could be written any way it wants. It could prohibit it. It could allow it. Whatever. It doesn't change hearts. I do not think, and I'm pretty confident in this, that God sat down and saw that decision and said, man, I am well pleased now with these people. Like that one decision, like, man, you know what? Now they are morally right. He knows our hearts deeply. And he knows that we don't obey laws. He knows that we are rule breakers. He knows that he has to, to redefine and create. And in fact, he says this quite clearly. I'm going to write the law on their heart. I'm going to change who they are to learn to love. You know when I think God will be pleased? When we learn to love like he loves. So, God loves life. When we, God is pleased when life is taken care of in all its forms, in all its ages. When children are brought into homes. When women who are forced to make impossible choices are cared for. This is when God is pleased, when we love them in that capacity. When we go after the root causes of why abortion actually happens, not because there's laws or not laws, mostly it's because of poverty, not the only reason, but that's the majority reason, because of poverty. When we go after those reasons and help people that are poor and love them, God is pleased when we begin to learn to love in this capacity. Not just because we do those things, but because we actually love him and we begin to do those things. God is then well pleased because he begins to see the hearts of his people being changed by him alone, by him alone. We are not Pharisees. We are children of our God who rewrites our hearts. John 13, 33 to 35. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, just as I said to the Jews. So now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I love how Jesus just changes the tone. He's little children. Now, 
fair point. His disciples were probably 10 years or 15 years younger than Jesus. Jesus was around 30, 33 at this time. Uh, most of his disciples were probably uh, teens at that point. Uh, Peter and John, Peter's probably a little bit older. He might be in his 20s. John, we don't know exactly, but we, we kind of estimate that. So they're significantly younger. So they're young disciples. These little children. It's, it's actually a term of endearment as well, too. Little children, I'm just here for a little bit, but you can't go where I'm going. It's, it's similar to what he said when John refers to the Jews later on. He says these kind of things, but he doesn't call them little children. In John 7, 33, 34, Jesus said to them, to the Jews, and the Jews are uh, the people that are in, it's a term for people in opposition to Jesus in the Gospel of John, not all Jewish people. Uh, it says, just then, Jesus, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. When he says it to them, to those that are opposed to him, this is actually a word of condemnation. You cannot go to my kingdom. You are not a part of my kingdom. Here he's saying to his disciples, little children, you can't go to where I'm going. In this immediate context, you can't go to the cross. This is not your time. This is not your hour. This is my time and my hour. This is what I and I alone have to do. You cannot come. You cannot do this. You don't even have the moral capacity to do what I am doing in this moment. Covenant of works. And then unlike the Jews and those opposition, he gives his disciples some, exp I'm going to be away from you. And while I'm away, here are some expectations I have for you. Now, uh, if, if you have children, uh, sometimes you leave them and you lay down expectations, right? Particularly if you have babysitters or people watching them or grandparents, and you expect your children to actually behave better while you are away, then I don't know why this is the fact. I want them to behave better when I'm around, right? <laughs> Let someone else do what they're shenanigans. But we expect them to behave better, so you lay down the expectation. This is how I expect you to behave while I go. This is what Jesus is essentially doing. It's like, this is how I want you to behave why I'm gone. And he gives them a new commandment. It's not a new commandment, by the way. It's not a new commandment. It's actually a very old commandment. This is Leviticus 19.18. They, they would have known this. It says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Kind of say, This is my character. This is what you will do. It's not a new commandment, but yet Jesus says it, and he gives a new standard. Did you hear the new standard in which he gave? Love one another just as I have loved you. That's the new standard. That's not there in the Old Testament. It says, love your neighbor. Like, oh, great, I'll set the terms and conditions of how I love my neighbor. And then Jesus says, no, no, here's the terms and conditions of how you'll love your neighbor. As I have loved you, you will love one another. Well, come on, Jesus. Can we lower the bar a little bit? But of course, they don't really understand that in full capacity because they're going to just experience it in a moment at the cross, what it actually means, how he's actually fully loves them. Jesus is moving the command from obedience to law to the obedience to love. He says, look, the new standard I give you is you're going to love as I have shown and actually loved you. You are going to be able to do this 
because I love you. That's really important. We don't come in our relationship with God and say, man, Jesus asked me to love one another. Now I got to pick up my bootstraps and I got to learn how to love and then he'll love me. No, no, no. He loves us first. And he shows us this love and he rewrites our hearts to begin to demonstrate that love and fulfills that love in us. Moves the command from obedience to law to obedience because of love. Changing the motivation to grace. We are to love one another just as Jesus loved us. And he gives us the ultimate example by laying down our life for others. Not based on what we do for each other. Jesus loves us this way. Because he loves the Father. We love each other in this manner, not because we are commanded, but because Jesus loves us. In verse 35, by this love, people will know that you are my disciples. This this command and motivation of love is is, is, is designed to reflect the relationship of the Father and the Son. It's to, it's to kind of illuminate the Trinity for us. And so we are to love in the same kind of circular way. Jesus loves us and we love him. And so this is what we do. Just as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father, this, circle, this command and motivation. Our love, I just want you to see it, right? Father loves the Son, the Son loves us, and this circular thing. And so that by this relationship of love, people will know and understand love. You see how it gets removed here? People are going to say, wow, what's different about them? Their motivation is different. They actually are motivated by love, and they love each other despite their, their actions. And when then we can begin to understand, they get pointed to the Father and the Son, and they begin to understand what love and grace is. And they will know that we're his followers. It moves us from obedience based on law, what someone does for us, to obedience based on love, grace, reflecting the very nature of the triune God. When we come to understand this new standard, this is really important, when we come to understand this new standard, we actually realize we can never meet it. When, when we come to understand that we now have to love like Jesus loves us, we actually realize, oh, I will never meet that standard because you can't fulfill the covenant of works. And you make, well, this, but, but here's the thing. This is actually interesting. The more we recognize our brokenness, the more we recognize our inability to sin, it's one of the reasons we do prayer confession, the more we recognize God's love for us. Uh, you, get, you get it? I mean, the more we recognize our brokenness, then they, we actually understand that Jesus' love is not based on our obedience. It's just based on this is what he freely does for us. Then we actually realize there's a greater depth to his love than we can better understand. And here's the crazy cycle. The more we actually understand his love, note that despite what we are, we actually begin to understand even more the depth of our depravity. And it's this kind of cylinder thing that gets even greater. The greater, the more we know the brokenness. The greater, the more we know the love. And it's all, you see, you see, that's all grace. That's all by definition what love is. And all of this helps us to appreciate 
God's love and his sacrifice even more in this covenant of grace that he gives us. Undeserved and freely given, this is the very character of the triune God. And this is the standard, this is the law, this is the character that he's recreating in us. And then comes Peter. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? I think that's the tone he said it. (laughs) Will, Will you, Peter? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow, till you have denied me three times. You remember at the very beginning I said, like we set the terms and conditions of our relationship and our love with Christ. This is what Peter is doing right now. Peter is well-intentioned. He is trying to follow his Lord and trying to follow Jesus everywhere. I'll go where you go. I'll lay my life down. It's just two issues that Peter has. He might have more, but two I'm going to state. First of all, he doesn't listen to Jesus very well. Like, he just hears the first part and forgets the second part. He says, you can't go where I go. Oh, go. And Jesus, Peter says, yes, I can. And Jesus is like, what are you? Did you not just hear what I just said? You can't go, but you're going to go. Like, you eventually will have to go where I go, but you can't go now. But Peter's like, yes, I can. Yes, I will. You see, Peter wants to set the terms and conditions of his relationship with Jesus. Yes, I will. This is how I will love you. And Jesus says, this is not how you will love me. This is not how this relationship works. Jesus has clearly said, this is how you will love me. Love one another. This is not how you will love me, by following me to the cross. No, this is how you will love me. Love one another while I'm gone. Peter doesn't hear it. The other thing that Peter makes a big stance, he has a gross ignorance of human weakness, including his. His own weakness, which Jesus gives him a reality check. Peter, you don't know this, but in just a moment, you're going to deny me three times. And then the rooster crows. It's actually a moment of grace that Jesus gives him by telling him this. And, I mean, you think about it, you think, like, no, I will not do that. I will not deny. Now I know I'm definitely not going to do it. And it, in the moment, and actually in the, in the uh, other Gospels, Jesus actually tells him, like, you're going to betray me, but then you're going to come back. And Peter doesn't hear the I will come back part. He actually, Jesus gives this, this, his name, in this grace in this moment. But, but Peter doesn't understand his inability, his sinfulness, his brokenness, his inability to love like Jesus. And so he thinks he can follow him. But he can't. We can't do what only God can do for us. We can't obey the law. We can't rewrite our hearts to love. Only God can do that. Don't expect other people to obey the law and to love. Don't expect yourself to be able to implement that into someone else. Only God can do that for someone. 
This goes back to this, this kind of circular thing, right? The more we actually understand our brokenness, the more we actually understand his love. And then the more we actually understand even more our brokenness and the more we actually stand the depth of love. Peter does not get that in this moment. Why does Jesus obey the Father? I have gone on long, haven't I? Because the Father loves him. And he loves the Father. Why ought we to obey Jesus? Because Jesus loves us. And he's teaching us to love him. How are we to obey Jesus? He's made it clear, hasn't he? You are to love one another. Just as I have loved you. And you may say, aren't we called to love our enemies as well? Not just one another. Well, it's not mutually exclusive. Right? You, you can love your enemies and love the people of God at the same time. I can love my wife and my children. It's a different kind of love. I can love you. I can love neighbors. I can love... Those are all different forms of love. God has the capacity, and so he's creating the capacity in us to love in that matter. Let us not respond to the love of Jesus by setting up our own prenuptials with him. Right? Defining our terms and conditions, how we'll be in relationship with God. This is how far I'll go, God. This is how much I will love you. This is what I will do for you. It's not love when we do that. It's manipulation. Brothers and sisters, God loves you. And because he loves you, he is creating a love for him and therefore others. His love is creative. His love recreates. His love is truly grace-filled love. Leave your terms and conditions at the door, or actually better, at the foot of the cross. Let us pray. Gracious Father, I am thankful that you do not let me set the terms and conditions of our relationship. I am thankful that you are a God that freely loves despite our brokenness. Continue to show us today, teach us today our brokenness, our sinfulness, and reveal to us your love and grow us in that love for you, for one another. You are a mighty God and we are thankful for you. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen.